tens of thousands of the Postal Service's rural carriers had a rocky start to September after a UPS payroll error resulted in incomplete and, in some cases, even missing paychecks. The Postal Service offered a Band-Aid solution, giving impacted carriers money orders roughly in the amount of their take-home pay. But the union representing rural carriers says not good enough. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And what exactly happened here, Jory? So this payroll error happened with the Postal Service's systems, and the National Rural Letter Carriers Association estimates that 53,000 of its members were impacted. The vast majority of them were non-career rural carriers that are relief carriers. They fill in for people when they are sick or away or otherwise not available. I spoke with the national president of that union, Don Mastin, caught up with him to see how this issue has been playing out. This affected the September 1st paycheck for impacted carriers. And he said that this payroll error caused more of a headache than any other IT issues he can remember. In my career, I've never seen one this large ever before. So it was a pretty monumental task to get make sure everybody got paid. So it was a pretty large number of employees and the system basically didn't have the information to input the way it needed to get them paid correctly. Wow, that's a pretty big error and something you would think couldn't happen because these things are totally automated. I mean, it's not like someone's sitting there and running a check writing machine. So what did USPS do to resolve it or at least carry it over till they could fix it? Yeah, well, like you said in the lead here, Tom, USPS decided to issue what they call a salary advance, which is just a money order that is roughly the amount of their take-home pay. Everyone got 65% of their net income, which is when you do all the deductions, roughly what they should be getting anyway. Everyone is in that same boat with that deduction. If they chose to go with the money order route, they could just wait for the next payday to get both the current paycheck and the one they were waiting on. And so this is you know, a situation that is you know, obviously troubling for carriers. I did see a couple of pay stubs where they did see that $0.00 come on the 1st of September. And of course, the USPS is going to have the obligation to pay the taxes and the Social Security, if that's applicable, for those employees at the point that they get their system back up and running. Right. And that's kind of the current state of play now is that it's it's good that carriers were able to get some sort of pay on the first if it wasn't their regular paycheck. But one thing that we heard from the union here is that it didn't apply to deductions if they had, you know, things automatically deducted from their paycheck, like a, a mortgage payment or a rent payment, anything that is impacted from that direct deposit. It fell down to the carriers to make sure that those automatic deductions were covered elsewhere in their financial situation. Wow. So is this thing resolved at this point? What we've heard from Mastin is that, yes, you know, they expect for the September 15th paycheck that impacted rural carriers should get that paycheck as promised. And we have not heard an updated statement yet from the Postal Service on that end of things. But Mastin did say that this is not an easy thing to sort out, particularly for the vast majority of people, these people who are the part-time relief carriers regular carriers, that's a lot easier to streamline process because it's one route, one carrier. But when you have the leave replacements, they may have worked on, you know, route one for one day, route two for a different day, provided auxiliary assistance for a few hours on a different route another day. So they have multiple certificates that would have to be processed. Yeah, so it's more complicated for rural carriers because they're not paid a flat salary in the way that the city carriers are that have the same route and the same shift day after day. So the rural carriers, as he said, it varies, and that's part of the reason that some of them are getting a pay cut and some getting more money under their new payroll system altogether. 
Right, right. Well, that ties back to some of the issues that have recently come up with particularly rural carriers. Back in the spring, we saw that two-thirds of rural carriers did see pay cuts with the implementation of the Rural Route Evaluated Compensation System, or RREX. That is something where people saw major cuts in their pay in the order of $10,000 or $15,000 in their annual income. And as a result, these same rural carriers, several thousand of them have led an effort to decertify their union in protest of what they've been seeing and upset there. Yeah, maybe RX ought to be renamed T-Rex because of all the damage and scaring it's causing all over the place. And there are other complications, though, from this payroll issue, too, besides taxes. Right, right. Well, like I said, Tom, you know, the automatic deductions, people who had, you know, rent or mortgage payments, car payments, things of that nature that are just automatically deducted from their direct deposit. That's something that they now have to cover. You know, I did hear from a couple of rural carriers who were upset with this issue. One rural carrier, particularly in Georgia, he said that this is the eighth time this year that he's experienced pay issues of one kind or another. Sometimes it's been his supervisor incorrectly inputting his hours. And this latest one, he said that, you know, we heard that for the vast majority of people, they did get those money orders if they requested them. This particular carrier said that his station, his local post office did not issue those payments. And now we are facing a holiday season where mail volumes might be up or package volumes might be up. You know, we've got Thanksgiving and Halloween. Oh, yeah. And then there's Christmas after that at some point. So pretty soon it's going to be picking up. The leaves will be falling. And so is this going to be resolved? And will the holiday season be okay on the payroll front, both because of the volume of work they'll be doing and because of the fact that people want to be paid on their own for holiday season? Right. I think the expectation on both parties here is that this was a one-off glitch with the payroll situation. But in terms of compensation for these rural carriers looking forward, if they're looking to pick up some extra Sunday shifts, that is now available to them. The USPS and the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, they signed a memo of agreement allowing full-time regular carriers to pick up these Sunday shifts. That's usually left up to the part-time relief carrier workforce, but because of workplace shortages, because of the vast demand for these Sunday shifts and the supply of carriers able to carry it out, these full-time rural carriers can now pick that up. Well, we'll see what happens because Christmas is a Monday this year, so a lot of people might prefer to work on Sunday and they won't have people to cover the Monday shift. What Mastin told me about this is that this is something that is very popular for rural carriers. He says he actually gets more calls and complaints when this does not happen, this agreement to have regular carriers pick up these Sunday shifts. And do we know whether this payroll system that had that glitch is operated by USPS directly or do they farm it out to a contractor? That's actually not clear. We haven't gotten a lot of answers from USPS directly on this, just simply that they acknowledge the problem and then they've been uh, trying to address it. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor 
uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Uh, secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were 
four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.